to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Today's podcast is sponsored by Sweet Spot Labs. Intimate dryness is one of the things I get asked about most in my practice. What I like to remind patients is that estrogen is to the vulva what collagen is to the face. As estrogen decreases, so does the moisture in your intimate skin, which can lead to drier, thinner vulvar skin that can commonly become more sensitive, itchy, and susceptible to contact dermatitis. There aren't many solutions out there that are safe, effective, and have a texture that's pleasurable to use. And that's why I absolutely love Rescue Balm from Sweet Spot Labs. It literally rescues intimate skin without compromise. It's a 100% naturally derived multi-purpose balm that moisturizes, soothes, and protects your most intimate and sensitive skin from dryness, itch, and irritation thanks to its triple moisturizing complex. Just as important as what's in it is what's not in it. Like all Sweet Spot Lab products, Rescue Balm is consciously clean and clinically proven to elicit zero size of gynecological or dermal irritation on intimate skin. And because it's estrogen free, it can be used in adjunct to hormone therapy. Visit sweetspotlabs.com and use code Dr. Hirsch at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's sweetspotlabs.com, S-W-E-E-T-S-P-O-T-L-A-B-S.com and code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off. Good morning, my AOWs. If you didn't know, AOW stands for Army of Women. That's really what I consider you, my listeners, my supporters to be. Because as you're listening and taking in all this information, you are going out and educating your friends and colleagues and peers on all the things that I have been teaching you. So good afternoon, my AOWs. This episode, we're going to be talking about the Women's Health Initiative. This is not the first time I've talked about the WHI here on my show. In fact, I probably talk about this every couple of months, but it is so important that we're going to reserve another episode as we embark on the 20th anniversary of the WHI. The WHI was released in uh, 2002 on July 10th. So it's, you know, really the anniversary. So it's been 20 years since the WHI and lives have been changed forever since that. In, in fact, it's really hard to find something parallel in medicine that's similar. Now there's been a lot of crazy events in the last couple of months and years, but this really has had a shockwave impact that has lasted for two decades that People like myself and my mentors and other menopause experts spend hours and hours and hours and hours deconstructing and, you know, have careers built on deconstructing the myths from that one study. That one paper single-handedly changed the lives of hundreds of millions, if not billions, of women. I mean, it's astronomical. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. I also realize that as you come in to listen to the show, you may uh, come in more recently. Maybe you haven't heard the last, you know, 30 or 40 of my podcast. Maybe you missed that one on the WHI, or it just serves as a really good reminder. Right off the bat, I want to say that I don't actually think the WHI was a bad study. A lot of people are like, oh, the WHI, this bad study, this evil study, this debunk study. 
it, it, it wasn't a bad study. In fact, a lot of the safety data we know about hormone therapy, we extrapolate from what was studied in the WHI to other formulations and routes of estrogen. So you need to know, I don't think it was a bad study. I think that it was when the results came out, there wasn't enough thought given to what all that data meant. When you have an, a huge amount of data of thousands and thousands of women from multiple different sites of all different ages, it is a lot to take in. And what they did at the beginning was took the results of all the participants in the study and lumped them together. The other thing is that when they chose the hormone therapy for the WHI, they specifically used one type one formulation, and that was Premarin. If you didn't have your uterus, you took Premarin. That's conjugated equine estrogen. That's horse's uh, urine estrogen. Okay. I don't think that that's, you can think whatever you want about that, but that's what it was. That's what it is. And that's still commercially available. And Prempro, that's uh, conjugated equine estrogen and medoxy progesterone acetate or MPA or Provera for short, put together in women who did have a uterus. And it was oral and they used one dose and that was it. We didn't know what we know today about timing of hormone therapy, dose, route, formulation, et cetera. So I don't think it was a bad study. It's just that when it was designed, the way it was designed and who it was studying was not really a part of how it was explained July of 2002. And the shock waves, literally, we're still feeling those ripple effects. It's been 20 years. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Let me get a sip of coffee and I'll be right back. Okay, I feel very refreshed. Now I'm doing this podcast all from memory. I talk and teach about the WHI all the time. So if I say one thing here or there that's not exactly perfect, you can come for me for sure. I'm totally fine with that. So the WHI was designed in the early 1990s. Now there's a great paper called Back to the Future that you can Google if you go on PubMed. And Back to the Future is this really interesting like Bible of mine. In the 80s and into the early 90s, short-term and prospective studies showed that women who took hormone therapy had reductions in cardiovascular disease and lived longer, as well as, of course, improving menopausal symptoms. And in two, uh, sorry, in, in, in 1992, that's my dyslexia for you. In 1992, the American College of Physicians, the ACP, recommended the use of hormone therapy. It was a time where I was not practicing medicine. I was born in 82. I finished medical school in 2010. And then I finished my fellowship training in 2014 to 16. But in 1992, it was a time where pretty much all women were given hormone therapy. So it's it's certainly a complete pendulum swing from where we are today. We're probably at the most five to seven, if we're stretching it really far, 10% of women in the, in the United States use hormone therapy. Probably it was upwards of like 50 or 60% of women were using hormone therapy. And it was really standard to give most women estrogen shortly after menopause. Now that's the key, shortly after menopause. So prospective studies are when you certainly, when you start watching patients at a certain time and you watch them going forward, it's not randomized. There's no placebo. There's no da, 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 da. It's just, this is the intervention. Let's see what happens. So those 
a prospect of studies done in the 80s and 90s showed, again, women were doing really well on hormone therapy. And so doctors sat around and thought, well, we have to do a randomized controlled trial to really prove, because that's the gold standard that hormone therapy is beneficial. Okay, so the plan for an RTC was put in place. Now, this is where those design decisions were made and we can't go back in time or, you know, certainly as an investigator, you can't see the future. You know what I mean? Certain formulations of hormone therapy may not have been, you know, widely used or et cetera. So they chose to use women aged 51 to to 79. That's a huge gap, 51 to 79 and to use Premarin or Prempro as the hormone therapy, and then, of course, compared to placebo. There was another arm. There was actually of the WHI. There was um, other arms of the WHI. There was a prospective sort of observational study going on at the same time where here's the intervention, we just watch you. But what we're talking about, what caused all of the downstream negative effects of hormone therapy was the randomized control trial, the WHI. All right. So you had women aged 51 to 79 who they started on hormone therapy. Now, some had, this is a little tricky to kind of really understand. Some women in the study had been on hormone therapy, but there was a large break where they weren't on hormone therapy. So they were technically, you know, considered to be starting on hormone therapy. So the study started in the late 1990s. And fun fact, they realized at first they gave everyone just estrogen and then they realized, oops, if you have a uterus, you could get uterine cancer. So that's actually kind of when we realized that we should give you a progesterone with your estrogen. It wasn't like, it was like 20, 20, 25 years ago. Okay. So, you know, anyways, so they started again, you've got the women who are in estrogen only, you have to understand they were on 0.65 of Premarin and then the women in the estrogen progesterone arm, they were on Prempro, that was uh, 0.65 of Premarin and uh, five or 2.5 of MPA, Provera, okay? Once daily oral tap. All right, so the study starts in the late 1990s and ends abruptly in 2002. So what happened in 2002? Well, what happened is in the Prempro arm, remember, those were the women who had a uterus, it looked like there was a crossover of safety threshold for new diagnoses of breast cancer. Okay. And because it crossed the safety threshold, which arguably is very conservative, because if you're doing a study, the point is not to harm people. So there was a, a crossover of what they're going to call, you know, a safety profile where the study stopped abruptly. And at the same time, they said, oh, well, we're also seeing a slight increased risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease. And so we need to stop the study. This was the first time in media history that a a scientific study or paper just kind of went mainstream media and it made great news. Well, we have this medicine that we were giving to everyone, but it causes breast cancer. Oh my gosh, that's great news. You all know it because 97% of you who listen to my show are women. So we all know that women getting hurt, women getting harmed, women's whatever, you know, dangerous things happening to women makes the news. It just makes the news. And the emotional response about boob cancer is astronomical. I am not diminishing it. But there's an emotional concern about breast cancer. And this is really, really important because what they found is the incidence increase. And we're going to talk about what that actually meant because it did not mean death from breast cancer. It meant new diagnosis. Okay. What was that increased risk? The media reported a 26% increased risk of invasive breast cancer in women who took hormone therapy. 
you need to remember that that was the women who took estrogen plus progesterone. The women in the estrogen only arm were actually doing really well. In fact, they actually were having less diagnosis of breast cancer than the placebo group. Yeah, less. That didn't make the news. There, there's no denying this fact. No menopause or NAMS expert would say that this is like uh, left up for interpretation. It statistically significantly was decreasing the risk of breast cancer. That did not make the news. You probably, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show may already know that. But when I tell people that or I correct physicians or I correct media people, their minds are always blown. The first thing that you can see is that all women were lumped together. It didn't matter if you were in the estrogen group, if you were in the estrogen plus progesterone group. No one talked about what dose it was. They just said there was a 26% increase of invasive breast cancer in 2002. Now in 2002, I was in college. This was right around my second or third year of college. I was studying for the MCATs. I probably wasn't paying any attention to media reports on hormone therapy at the time, even though I was always interested in women's health. So I tell you all this in what I have now sort of reverse engineered and learned. Okay. So what does a 26% increased risk mean? Whenever I tell my patients that they're like, that, that doesn't, it means that's absolute risk. And so we've been listening to absolute risk in terms of COVID for the last two years. This town has a 50% increased risk in COVID cases. Well, you know, now, you know, how big is that town? What does 50% mean? Is there four people? Is there 7,000 people? Like, what does that really mean? And if they were infected, does that mean they got sick? Were they hospitalized? Right. You've actually had life experience where you know that these numbers are not just like numbers. They actually mean things. They have downstream meanings. 26% of absolute risk and relative risk meant two to four women out of a thousand women over the five years who took the oral PremPro at 0.625, 2.5. That's what that meant. Two to to four women out of a thousand over five years who took oral PremPro. Two to four women out of a thousand. What, what does that even mean? Well, what is baseline? That's not that far off from baseline. But we know that, for example, when I teach, I say there's an association, associated risk if you drink alcohol nightly or more than five glasses a week, there's an increased risk from 11 to 65% of breast cancer. That actually sounds worse than the WHI, but we don't go around. That doesn't make the news as much. That doesn't scare people. A lot of people may drink already more than five glasses of alcohol a week, right? So they're like already assuming the same risk. But when you say hormones gave women breast cancer, I mean, that just triggers a gut response in people. So you could say that actually the associated risk of breast cancer is higher if you drink five glasses of, of alcohol a week. It's higher too than the two to four women out of a thousand over five years if you smoke, if you have diabetes, if you have hypertension, if you're obese or overweight, if you put any of those together. So no one really stopped to explain what the heck this meant. And it didn't mean you died from breast cancer. I mean, you got the diagnosis of breast cancer. It did not mean that you died from it. In fact, if you keep listening to this show, which I'm sorry if it's hard to listen to because I'm spewing out really interesting, important facts, that actually the women in the WHI who got that breast cancer, those two to four women out of a thousand, actually lived longer than women who got breast cancer in the placebo group. The other thing that that didn't say is that if you, if you weren't to take hormone therapy or if you stay away from that, does that decrease your risk of breast cancer? Well, not really. Because let's say again, 
let's say 10% of women in the U.S. take hormone therapy. It's probably less. And I'm, I mean FDA-approved hormone therapy, not the unregulated pellets and compounded crap. But let's say 10%, and that's being pretty aggressive. 10% of women take hormone therapy. 90% don't. Most women who get breast cancer are not on hormone therapy, right? So, you know, my patients are, you know, when we struggle, are we thinking about, should we come off? Should we come off? Look, you know, if you come off, that's not going to guarantee you any, like that you're not going to get breast cancer. The, the statistical rate of women of getting breast cancer is one in eight. And just to put this out there, the, um, the, the, the long, the, the risk of, um, surviving is in the high 90, 95%. So long as it's caught early right? Where the, it's the later stages of breast cancer, which spread very, very fast um, that are more deadly. So incidence increased. Okay. What about this stuff about heart attacks and clots? Well, you know, that was kind of put out there as well. So that study, the estrogen plus progesterone arm was closed after about 5.2 years. Now, interestingly, the estrogen arm kept going for two more years. So that's why when people say the results of the WHI that came out between like 2002, 2004, the estrogen only arm continued for like one and a half to two more years because they were doing so well, like really well. And there's no good reason as to why it closed down. It just did about seven years after the study was planned to go for, I think about 10 years. So it stopped short. Now, again, what you need to know about the estrogen arm is that they found statistically significant reductions in breast cancer. And why did this get no media attention? I don't know. You tell me. We all know the reason, right? Good news doesn't make, make good, good things happening. Women doesn't make the news as much. It's just not a good news story. All right. In 2007 and 2013, there was adjudicated results of the WHI or post-hoc analysis of the WHI. Now, your, you know, your epidemiologists are going to say post hoc analysis is just not as good. It's not what the study was actually designed to look at, but it's essentially when you just look at the data in a different way. Okay. And what they did in 2007 was they said, huh, those younger women were kind of doing okay. So they looked at the age uh, as the age at which you started from the onset of menopause. And what they found is that if you started hormone therapy within 10 years of your last period, there was a lot of good stuff there. In either arm, in either arm, there was reductions in cardiovascular diseases. There was longevity. Actually, women lived on average 3.2 years longer than women who don't take hormone therapy in both of those arms. There was reductions in colon cancer, reductions in diabetes, improvements in quality of life, improvements in sleep, improvements in sexual function, improvements in bone health, improvements in cognition, and then also improvements in genitourine syndrome of menopause and GSM and pelvic floor. Okay, that sounds pretty freaking good. So what what is going on? What What's the deal? Well, again, when we looked at the results of the 2002, even though in 2007, 2013, 2000, and I think like 17 as well, they kept looking at these data and showing, look, if you start within 10 years of menopause, you really have a positive a benefit to risk ratio. The benefits outweigh the risk. The damage that was done in 2002 has been unable to, to, to just like unveil. It has persisted because the messages that we got in medical school and the messages and the things that we saw in training from 2002 have pretty much tarnished a lot of people. If you have been listen, an avid listener to the show, you may know that my medical school 
uh, lesson on menopause was a free lunch lecture that you could go to or not. It was like not even mandatory to learn about menopause. It was like a free lunch lecture. You could go and get pizza. And it was 2006 or seven. And, you know, I remember just this like younger looking peppy woman who was maybe one of the authors of the WHI or one of the PI or investigators. There was numerous because there was, you know, many, many, many different sites throughout the United States that participated in the WHI. And the goal was actually to get younger women in this study, but the average age of the woman was 63 and a half. So the majority of these women were older and only about, I think like 10 or 15% of women were within five years of menopause. Like that's crazy. That, and if you think about in real life, when most people want to start hormone therapy is shortly after menopause, the majority of women are not looking for hormone therapy replacement 10 or 20 years later. Now, the reason I see them in my office is because they've been dying with hot flashes for 10 or 20 years and everyone's given them antidepressants or black cohosh. Um, but most women, when they talk to their doctor or present with symptoms is shortly after menopause. So, the, you know, the, again, the design of the study of which I was not a part of, and I'm not saying they did it wrong because no one can predict the future. They got a much older cohort of women and women who are age 51 or 53 are often busy AF. They're at the peaks of their career. They're taking on new hobbies. They're busy to taking their kids to colleges or to school or helping their parents out or et cetera. They just couldn't get the enrollment as in, uh, that they wanted for so many women in their 50s. All right, so I, I digress. The message that uh, I got in medical school was, oh my gosh, we used to give everyone hormone therapy and now we know it kills everyone. Now we know. Like that was the message and it gives them breast cancer. So, and then that's the message that almost everyone gets. And then my message in residency was, well, uh, if you really have to use hormone therapy, if you've tried every antidepressant under the sun, if it's really, 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 really broad, then use hormone therapy, the very, 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 very lowest dose for the shortest, 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 shortest time. That was the message I got in residency. Then I went to fellowship training at Cleveland Clinic and studied under Dr. Holly Thacker, who, um, along with many other amazing mentors along the way, who've taught me everything in my brain that I know have taught me that that was not evidence-based. The evidence from the WHI showed that actually women within 10 years of menopause have major benefits from hormone therapy. It reduces their symptoms. It improves their quality of life, improves their longevity. It, uh, 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 decreases the risk for cardiovascular disease, for bone health. They work longer, they feel better, they thrive. And I see this every single day in my practice. And women who take estrogen only have the added benefit that it actually reduces the risk of breast cancer. So let's circle back to the risks of hormone therapy. The biggest risk is not cancer. It's the rare risk of a blood clot. And you can easily kind of look at this through a lens of, well, most women in midlife have you know, done a stress test on their body at some point. They've either been on birth control pills, which have a higher risk for blood clot, pregnancy, surgeries, anything like that. If they've had three C-sections or on birth control for 20 years or et cetera, you can probably assume that the risk of clot from hormone therapy, which is often overestimated, is very, 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 very low. Okay. And you can minimize that risk if you use transdermal. So the biggest risk is not cancer, it's the rare risk of a blood clot. But what about this whole breast cancer thing? Well, let's go back to it. So again, I said the women who took estrogen only studies have shown and proven without question that women who take estrogen alone have reductions in the risk of breast cancer. The risk of breast cancer is always going to be one in eight in the general population because, 
you know, that's what breast tissue is. It's basically tissue that's really meant to help nurse a baby. And then after that, you know, it's very easy for that tissue to go away and there can be breast cancer. It's just the same thing with prostate. They're, They're kind of the similar man and women equivalents of, you know, very frequent cancers. And luckily we have amazing treatment. All right. In the estrogen plus progesterone arm, it was two to four women out of thousand over five years. That was the incidence. I told you already that the mortality rate was lower, that actually those women lived longer. The theory here is that not that hormone therapy gives you cancer. It's just that if you have a predisposition for this or a genetic risk factor, it probably causes it to show up faster. Therefore you get treated faster. There's lots of interesting data about this. And I really, if, you, if this is something that you're really struggling with, I want you to go to my YouTube channel, type in um, Health by Heather Hirsch podcast. Or if you're an avid listener to the show and you haven't listened to the episode I did with Dr. Avram Blooming, it's uh, like 107. I know because it's the most popular podcast uh, episode uh, of my whole show. It's had the most downloads, several thousand. You're going to want to go listen to that. So now there was another study and I'm going to be presenting at NAMS, which is the North American Menopause Society annual meeting in October. I've been asked to present uh, one of the most important papers of 2022, and I'm going to present a paper on prometrium. So if estrogen didn't, if estrogen alone decreased the risk of breast cancer, wouldn't an estrogen plus progesterone slightly increase the risk of breast cancer? Wouldn't it be more likely that actually the progesterone is the culprit, not the estrogen? In fact, in the 70s and 80s, estrogen was used as chemotherapy to introduce apoptosis or cell death. And so we think actually the more noxious hormone may be the progestin. So if we replace this with um, more, more natural types of progesterones like micronized um, prometrium or micronized natural progesterone, also known as prometrium, there's been a lot of research to show that that doesn't increase the risk of breast cancer in the same slight teeny way, right, that Prempro did. And so different formulations of hormone therapy are important. Is it Premarin? Is it estradiol? Is it Provera? Is it prometrium? Is it transdermal? Is it oral? These all really matter. Another thing that we've also learned is that the IUD, which is the intrauterine device that releases progesterone to the uterus, may also help to decrease that risk because it may be mimicking the idea of estrogen alone by the progesterone not being uh, systemic. So that's really interesting to think about. So I have a lot of patients who choose to do an IUD plus systemic estrogen. Now, this isn't proven because we don't have head-to-head trials, and it's going to take a long time and lots of data to see if this comes to fruition, but it would make a lot of sense. So there's lots of things we learned from the WHI. The 2022 position statement on hormone therapy came out also just a few weeks ago, and I wanted to do a whole show on that, but it really is even more or slightly more... um, aggressive and uh, to the point than the 2017 position statement that says the benefits of hormone therapy vastly outweigh the risks for women who start within 10 years of menopause who have no known contraindications to hormone therapy, such as a history of clots, history of breast cancer, um, or any other really outstanding uh, condition. Okay. So for most women, healthy women, hormone therapy is very, very, very healthy. And we are still trying to deal with those effects from the WHI. 
So as you can see, the WHI actually gave us a lot of really good data. <laughs> it gave us the data that hormone therapy is safe. It gave us the data that benefits do exist for women who use estrogen only. It gave us the data that if you use it within 10 years, there's benefits. Now, does this mean that you have to be within 10 years? Well, in my practice, this is where I, I really shine in doing consults with women who 10 years out. This is an individualized discussion. Um, and so the WHI was a good study in the sense that it gave us a lot of the information that me and the other menopause experts discuss when we're teaching our patients, students, followers about hormone therapy. It's by far not the only study. There was the KEEPS trial. There's the ELITE trial. There's the um, DOPS trial, which doesn't mean that you need to look these all up. But they're all showing that the safety of hormone therapy when you use different formulations, especially estradiol and prometrium, for women who are within 10 years have even better safety benefits than PremPro. So is PremPro bad? No. I always say to my patients, if I was on a deserted island and all that was available is PremPro, I would happily take PremPro. <laughs> but there's other options. There's estradiol. If it were me, um, I will probably use oral estradiol and an IUD. Why? Just because I know I'm not going to be good with the patch. I don't like things on my skin. I get really e irritated. I'm fine with taking medications. And I've had IUDs for many, many, many years. And I think there is a lot of safety there as I've kind of discussed or unraveled in this episode here today. So it's been 20 years since the WHI came out. How the heck are we going to continue to change the trajectory, right? How are we going to get 50% of women back on hormone therapy? I think that's a reasonable goal because I think that's how many people need it. You know, it, it really, I think the biggest thing is educating our physicians. So certainly there's educating the general public and laywomen and a lot of listeners of my show are nurse practitioners, PAs, healthcare providers, uh, pelvic floor PTs. We have to train our doctors. Again, that message still exists. The one that I got in both medical school and residency. There's not a lot of training programs for women uh, or men to learn hormone therapy. Sorry, women and men, really. Uh, you know, we need uh, we need advocates on both sides of the spectrums here, right? Both sides of everyone. Um, there's not a lot of training programs and the the ACGME really doesn't put a lot of emphasis on teaching menopause medicine. Menopause is seen as a siloed event. Your periods end, boop, done. You know, that's the message. Well, when menopause happens, at the same time, that's when women develop chronic diseases. The loss of estrogen contributes to bone loss, to changes in memory, to changes in sleep, to changes in cognition, to metabolism. It's not a siloed event. They're all very much um, intertwined. So the educating of physicians is really important because you certainly can have the experience of seeing me or seeing another great menopause doctor who gives you the patch or gives you the progesterone and then your doctor says, <gasps> Oh, I can't tell you how many patients have told me, oh, my doctor's going to be so mad at me. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's straight up bias. That is straight up bias. That's not looking at evidence-based medicine. It's not. I don't, I, I don't know a better way to say it. So we have to educate our physicians. And that really frustrates and annoys and confuses patients because it's not fair that they'll listen to me say, yes, this is really good for you. And then their doctor that they've seen for 20, 30 years kind of gives them the like side eye. It's not a pleasant experience and that's not how it should be. I had a patient tell me just the other day that when her doctor got breast cancer, she started taking all of her patients off hormone therapy. And listen, it's not to say that we're, doctors are not human, but there's no evidence for that. That is also, whether it's 
you know, meaning to be well or not, that's also straight up bias. There's been some great studies by Phil Sorrell, another mentor of mine, showing the damage done from the WHI. When the WHI came out, everyone threw away their hormone therapy. Not everyone, but most people did. And doctors stopped prescribing it. It was a frenzy. And the, the, the uh, chronic diseases, the bone diseases, the osteoporosis, the osteopenia, the fractures, the um, retiring early, the broken marriages, the depression, the uh, you know decrease in longevity, all of those are really significant impacts, negative impacts that have happened to hundreds of thousands of millions of women since the WHI has come out. I'm sure it wasn't the intent, but that is what's happened. And that's why so many of us fight every day to teach online, to teach through podcasts, to teach through our patients about the evidence-based truth of hormone therapy. Now, again, we want you to stay, you know, many women turn to compounded and pellets because of this exact reason, because their doctors didn't know what the heck to do, because wellness clinics started popping up, because they knew there was a market for women who wanted to feel better, but their doctors wouldn't prescribe hormone therapy or for whom if they could make it sound like it wasn't hormone therapy, it was something different, it would be better. And that's bullshit. And that's also a significant downstream effect of what's happened since the WHI. So we have a long way to go. So we need to educate our physicians. Uh, We need to change the way media is perceived. Uh, Sorry, we need to change the way menopause is perceived in the media, um, through TV shows, um, at the workplace, at the doctor's office. All of that is really important. And clinicians really need to recognize their bias, this deep-seated bias that hormone therapy is dangerous. And a lot of this also has to do with fears that they don't know what they're doing because they were never trained in it. So as a clinician, especially a young clinician or a clinician of any age, if you don't know something, you're going to be fearful. And the way to sort of combat that is to just tell your patient something to get them to move to the next topic. And I hate to say that, but again, that's, it's, 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 we're all human. If we don't know how the heck to prescribe hormone therapy, we're going to say, well, I don't think you really need that. And it could increase your risk for cancer that you hear that word and the patient's going to turn the other way. That's not true. And that's not true. All right. Well, thank you so much. I know this has been literally, it's hard to see if I've even taken a breath during the show. I hope you love this show. I hope you like this podcast episode. Please share it on your social media, share it to friends. It is the 20th anniversary of the initial release of the 2002 July 10 WHI. And we are still very much in a pretty similar place. Now we've made a lot of efforts and a lot of us feel like we've really moved the needle, but every once in a while, you know, I get someone pop up on my feed or in my office. Who's like, I am really scared to take this. My doctor says it's really bad. And, and still SSRIs are always prescribed as first line when the only FDA approved option for symptomatic menopausal symptoms, genitourine syndrome of menopause and osteopenia is hormone therapy. So got a long way to go. You can follow me several places. I'm sure you know that I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Heather Hirsch MD. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can also subscribe to my subscribers only show. You can, um, yeah, just kind of jump on my email list as well. If you haven't downloaded your free hormone health guide, you can do that anywhere. You can find links in my bio or my website, heatherhirschmd.com. All right, friend, I will see you next week for a brand new episode. Bye everyone.
If I haven't already done so, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my show. Consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. Also, if you love the show, your stars or a quick review could really help other women who are searching for information on menopause and midlife around the globe find this show. If you want to work with me, consider the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass. The link for that is in the description to this show. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all your support, and I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Episode.